For this episode of the podcast, we have the honor to have Major Adam Thompson on as our guest. Major Thompson is a 2008 Attachment 330 commissionee, an NJEP grad, an F-15 and now F-35 pilot, and currently a student at the UK Defense Academy. He had some great insight to share on our podcast today, so I hope you enjoy. Major Adam Thompson, ladies and gentlemen. So we're rolling. Uh, good afternoon, Major Adam Thompson, uh, coming all the way from England. So uh, if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you're from, uh, your background, death through theory and stuff like that. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm uh, Major Adam Thompson, go by Fish. Um, I'm currently in the United Kingdom, uh, enrolled in the Joint Services Command and Staff College here, um, uh, which sort of fulfills my intermediate development education portion of uh, my Air Force career, if you will. Um, so I'm here with uh, a bunch of international people. That's currently what I'm doing, what has led me uh, to this point is a life up and down the East Coast that sort of settled in Maryland uh, until I eventually went to University of Maryland where I decided to join Debt 330. Uh, no scholarship going in. And then uh, I, uh, I didn't get a four-year scholarship, but then I joined AAS and MHG the first year, tried really hard, got a three-year scholarship. Um, and then uh, from there was selected for uh, pilot slot went to NJEPT and then got strike eagles out of pilot training. Um, so uh, I then trained for the strike eagle in North Carolina at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. And then my first assignment was at Lake and Heath in the United Kingdom, um, where I had one deployment and uh, multiple uh, temporary duty assignments or TDYs uh, across the world, really. Um, that deployment was seven and a half months. And then um, that was in the middle of my three-year assignment flying the Strike Eagle at Lake and Heath. After that, I went to, I got assigned to uh, teach introduction to fighter fundamentals at NJEPT. So back in at Shepard Air Force Base, Texas. Um, and what introduction to fighter fundamentals is, is if you go to pilot training and you get picked up for a fighter, there's a 10 week course, at least as it currently stands, there's a 10 week course where you're taught the basics of flying fighters, uh, dogfighting, bombing, um, and also a little bit of uh, fighter pilot ethos, if you will. So I was there for three and a half years and um, out of there, I got picked up to transition to the F-35 and um, that was at Eglin Air Force Base. And after I flew the transition course there, um, we taught the basic course and the transition course. So all of the pilots in that unit, in that squadron were instructors. So I learned how to fly the F-35. And a couple of weeks later, I started the instructor upgrade and learned how to instruct in the F-35. So I was there for two years. And then um, I joined out of, or I came here from Eglin um, out of that assignment. So that's sort of my military aviation background, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty cool. Um, definitely have got a lot of questions for you in a lot of regards. Seems like you've spent a lot of time in England, which I'm intrigued about. Um, but if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to kind of start from the beginning. So kind of starting off like a little bit, kind of why you joined Debt 330 or an AFRATI in general, uh, was it kind of last minute decision? If it was, like, uh, what kind of led to you making that decision first off to just join Air Force RTC in the first place? Um, so, you know, towards the end of high school, when I probably knew less about what I wanted to do than most people, my dad started, you know, giving me ideas, and one of them was applying to the Air Force Academy. So I started that application process. Um, and about halfway through, I decided that I wanted a real college experience. Right. Yeah. Uh, so then he was like, well, you know, what about Air Force RTC? Because <clears throat> he was a flight surgeon in the Air Force. So he was a, a little biased in that regard. Right. 
Um, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'll look into it. So uh, I think I, I either could have gone to University of Florida, Florida State or Maryland. And it ended up being about an hour away from uh, my hometown of Frederick. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So I joined, <clears throat> uh, I said, yeah, University of Maryland's uh, the way to go. Love the flag. Colors are cool. Turtles a little. Full flag. Tur turtles cool, but you know, not too fierce. Uh, yeah, nice, yeah. nice in between. Turps yeah. is a nice way to call it too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, from there I uh, went up to the debt. Um, that was it's it's not still in Cold Fieldhouse, is it anymore? No, it? not anymore. Yeah. It moved. I want to yeah. say like the year before I came, so four yeah, five years it's, ago. Yeah, been a couple, been a few years. Um, yeah, so back when it was up in Cold Fieldhouse, right. Um, Took, took a walk up there from my dorm room and uh, kind of fell in love with it. And then uh, from there, I joined and like started with AS and MHG. And, you know, I don't, I don't know where they've gone uh, since, but uh, I really enjoyed uh, that sort of cemented my uh, role or foundation in ROTC and sort of made the rest of it. Uh, enjoyable and easy. So that's sort of how I got involved in RTC, if you will. Yeah. Uh, did you have a favorite or more involved organization between MSG and AAS? Was there one that uh, you kind of felt more inclined to, or is it just both like really, they're, they're great organizations and they're both a little different in what they do, but um, what would you like specifically about them and kind of any fun memories from you know going through those organizations um honestly I, I i wouldn't be able to pick one over the other yeah um, and that that's not just a bipartisan uh viewpoint um they both provided exceptional opportunities for me <clears throat> and the people who went through at the time um the uh, archon events you know i went to salt lake city chicago uh, I think Miami, no, not Miami, somewhere in Florida near Tampa. Oh, wow. Um, so, so got to, we got to go to big, you know, big events, go across the country for that. Um, and we had cool events with silver wings that we would do locally, um, go down to DC and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then the honor guard, just having the ability to go to cool sporting events or go to significant events being so close to DC, um, when they were opening the air force memorial, um, they, for the opening ceremony, I think it was like the ceremony prior to the opening ceremony. I don't know, but we went out there for the rehearsal <clears throat> and, uh, the coordinator goes, Hey, can, uh, can you guys, uh, we're going to put the flags up at whatever this time. <clears throat> and I said, so, okay, so how, how have you guys normally, how have you normally done it? And he was like, Oh, um, <clears throat> no one's ever put a flag up here before <laughs> wow so, so it was it was a it was a rare rare opportunity and then um we got to do the sort of cordon and um the, the colors for the opening ceremony of the air force memorial which you know it kind of a once in a lifetime thing and just right. you know, luck and timing if you will but if i weren't in mhg yet you know wouldn't have even had an opportunity like that so I wouldn't say between the two. Honestly, I would say do both if your uh, if your time can absorb that. Um, I was able to do both and teach in both classes, so I think there's enough time. But I also was a criminology criminal justice major, so right a lot of free time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm an engineering major, but my my good friend in RTC is a crim major, so we always yeah. go back and forth about the two. But yeah. Uh, he's enjoying college, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm a little jealous. Yeah, sure. yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I, I did. I mean, that freedom of time enabled me to um, spend more time in RTC, which right. you know that may have helped with with my overall assignment. Who knows? There's a lot that goes into the calculus, and I'm sure the where they count what has changed since then as far as fitness scores and AFOQT, if it's still called that, and you know, performance at field training. Um, but yeah. Right. 
so did you always know you wanted to fly once you joined Air Force RTC? Was that kind of like, I'm in Air Force RTC, might as well fly, or is it something that kind of came later down the line? Um, honestly, a lot of my, my overall approach to my career has been an open door policy and not in like the sense that you'd hear someone say, you can always walk in and talk to me whenever you want. It's more, I like always have tried to keep as many doors open as possible until I, until I have to make a decision, uh, sort of like the career procrastinator, if you want to look at it that way. But, um, I did not grow up wanting to be a pilot or a fighter pilot specifically. Uh, but in, while on RTC, it was, it was like, oh, that's, yeah. Uh, I think it was the time when they said, yeah, you have to, it's time to put in for your rated, uh, slots or apply for position. and that day I was like yeah yeah um yeah let's do it and then it was like hey um if you want to apply for inject apply for inject this is now's the time and I was like well sounds cool let's do it and that's sort of been like it's sort of been each step of the way um with with a with a little bit of being proactive and, and trying for things to the extent of when I was leaving Shepard to go to Florida and fly the F-35. I thought I would be going back to the Strike Eagle, but um, I proactively reached out to someone I knew at Eglin and was like, hey, um, I want to come fly the F-35 and teach at Eglin. They were like, oh, well, that's cool because we need someone like you based on my background, not, not me as a person, uh, to come out here. So my approach in within my uh, flying career, at least, has shifted a little more from I'll wait for the opportunity to come meet me and just decide to I'm going to go chase the opportunity a little more. Um, right. Just do well. Started that one day when they said, do you want to apply for a rated position? And I was like, yeah, why not? Why close that door? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. sounds like do well at your whatever task you're given um, yeah. and make sure any possibility that comes up, like you're ready and have the opportunity if you want to, to kind of grab and take it. So, um, yeah. So yeah, once as, you. As, as cliche and maybe stereotypical as it is, yeah. most people, most people who um, have perceived success usually just say, I've just worked really hard every step of the way, you know, and uh, I mean, it is true as I look back at different sections and phases of ROTC pilot training and sort of every, every way that's gone. Right. So did you have any flight hours or anything when it came up to rate of boards and stuff like that? Zero? Got to end Not, up with zero flight hours? No, I, um, there was one opportunity where I flew in a Huey during RTC, I flew all, all over DC, but that was, yeah, was I did that too. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't, uh, I'd never, I'd never controlled an aircraft until my dollar ride in the T6 at Shepard. And it was, it was wicked and mildly terrifying and very different than what I thought as I was on the ground looking at, you know, the friends and the classes before me take off. Sure. So getting into NGEP, getting a pilot slot and all that, you obviously probably did pretty well in ROTC. Kind of what positions did you have while at that 330? And kind of if you have any advice for cadets in ROTC right now to do well. Um, positions I had, I um, had a few deputy uh, positions in the, I stayed in the ops group as, as best I could. Um, just because it sort of fit my personality. Um, and I was deputy or a de deputy OG, I think. And then I was the OG group, the group commander. Um, I was the AAS commander, I think is my sunset, sunset tour. Um, and uh, what did I do my first couple of years? Gosh, it's making me feel old. Um, I can't, I can't remember what I did uh, freshman year other than just shining the daylights out of my shoes and showing up and, you know, over starching my 
blues and just being motivated. Uh, but those were <clears throat> the positions I had. The ones that stand out to me the most were the uh, ops group commander and the AES commander um, because they were super rewarding. Um, yeah, those are the positions. What was the other part of your two-part question? Oh, yeah. Second part was just kind of, do you have any advice for cadets going through Death 330 right now to succeed or excel in uh, kind of their positions and just in general, really? Um, with, with the advantage of hindsight, um, I had a really good friend in RTC who um, didn't, didn't care as much about like the uniform regs. It was sort of like, oh, you know, it's just, it's just make believe. It's just, it's just play time. And I didn't take that approach. I took the approach of uh, I'm here doing it. So I'm going to give it my all. And if I'm going to put on my uniform, I'm going to make it look really good. Um, oddly enough, I was stationed with that uh, individual an assignment or two later. And she came back to me and she was like, you know, as much as I hated you for talking about gigging my, you know, shirt and I had lint on my hat, you know, prior to lead lab that one day, it kind of, I'm kind of glad you did that because now I'm like public affairs and it's kind of important. And I think back to those times, you know, and it was, it was those little things, like as far as, you know, making the effort to do the little things. And if I were to do it again, I would say, have that effort for the little things while still trying to maintain a bigger picture. I got really focused, which I think is uh, common, but I got really focused on the little things too often and wouldn't like step back and see how um, what I was doing was like affecting the team or big picture. I couldn't sometimes step back and take a, a bigger look at maybe some personal variables of like someone commuting across town and you know there were five seconds late and I'm like you know must be on time but I don't have to deal with the commute so stuff like that just taking sort of a, a bigger picture of it while still taking it seriously would, would be uh, my best advice because a lot of you know a lot of concepts correlate very accurately to active duty um, that I've found both in work ethic and um, just interaction in the military. So I think it set us up very well for active duty uh, if you took it seriously, but not too seriously. Right, absolutely. Have a little fun with it, but still take it seriously. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, that's something we've definitely talked about is just an awareness as a leader to be aware like, yeah, I got to walk 10 minutes to class, but like these other people waking up at 2 a.m. to drive here three hours from West Virginia. So um, yeah, that's definitely something. It, it's, it's crazy to think about just so many different people in RTC from so many different backgrounds. And it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's one of the things I'm kind of interested with RTC. It's just to see that. Yeah, and it's, it's a very good um, representation of what you'll see in, you know, whatever squad, your first squadron that you're in, regardless of your AFSC or career field um, and and getting to understand people's background and like what a what they bring to the table but b their constraints you know are they married do they have kids you don't know what having kids does until you have kids and I look back now at like lead lab and I was like oh man that's amazing that that person even stayed an hour after lead lab to to chat about this <laughs> with right. with all the stuff on their plate but um yeah, I mean, we have our wing commanders getting married in January. I'm still looking for a girlfriend. Um, yeah. We got cadets like all over the place. <laughs> the wide wide range. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I guess moving on, uh, I'd like to talk about NGEP a little bit. I'm kind of curious, want to pick your mind a little bit on it. We've had, I think my freshman year, we had a senior that commissioned and went to NGEP. And then this past year, we have uh, two cadets going to NGEP. So, um, kind of curious your experience with it and kind of how that differs from just basic pilot training um i'll just assume no one knows the the differences 
between Injept and the other three pilot training bases, um, not to insult anyone's intelligence, but just as a common playing field. Um, so uh, Columbus, Vance, and Laughlin all have, you go through the T6, and at the end of the T6, you get uh, rated or slotted or tracked into T38s or the T1 currently by the, I don't know, by the time some of the people watching this get in, it may be the, uh, was it the Red Hawk, the T7? The next, the next pilot trainer, the Red Hawk. Um, either way, uh, you'll go through, uh, you'll either go T38s, the Red Hawk, or the T1. And from there, T1, you'll have different uh, aircraft options at the end of pilot training where if you go T-38s, then you have the option to go to fighters, but you don't necessarily go to fighters if you get T-38s, it's whatever the Air Force needs at the end. So there's a lot of timing at the end of any pilot training. At Shepard um, and Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training, because it is NATO and because there are other countries um, who have a dog in the fight and who uh, literally own uh, some of the aircraft on the ramp, it it can't, it is just T6 and T38. So it's just one track because of what all the nations want and what they need in a program to um, have an output of fighter pilots at the end. So that doesn't mean that it is better than the other three pilot training bases. Um, there, you know, there's a perception uh, of that. I remember that in RTC. And I even remember that shortly after pilot training where you show up to showed up to the Strike Eagle B course and they're like, oh, you're from Egypt. I'm like, no, you know, it's just a different process. Um, but specifically at Egypt, because it is one track, you don't have that same uh, condensed time pressure or mental pressure um, to perform in the first stage in the T6. Um, because you just continue on, you go T6 and you go T38 and, and they, they take a look at the whole thing. And then at the end they go, okay, how well have you done and what aircraft are available? And now we can sort of rack and stack you. My self-reflection is that if I would have gone to any of the other three bases, I tracked T38s because I, I guess I learned slowly, but my you know learning curve sort of was a little bit parabolic uh, right. and a lot of yeah. people that I talked to, yeah, uh, but a lot of people that I talked to and um, who went to the other bases, they were like, dude, I crushed it in the T6 and T38 was so difficult. Whereas I found the T38 phase a lot easier. Um, so so there, was, there is that benefit if you're a slow starter or you have zero you know, flying experience to go to Egypt in that regard. That's more the process as far as the interaction. Um, the international interaction, th there are international students at the other three bases, um, but the it, it's a lot more uh, saturated at NATO, at Egypt. And so, I don't know if you can hear that on the how to turn off my notifications, sorry. <laughs> Jackie. Um, the, the international experience was amazing. And I think it's led me to uh, where I am now. And a lot of the interactions I've had with other, um, other nations pilots. So we had a class with uh, Dutch pilots, Italian pilots and German pilots um, to all even numbers of the four nations, which, which is a little rare, but it was an amazing experience getting to see their cultures and both socially and uh, applying it to work. And oddly enough, I met up with five of the other international pilots, you know, in the years following pilot training before I even saw one of my US counterparts. So it sort of built some really cool uh, friendships and foundations that you know, I was able to meet up with people in England, in uh, the UAE, excuse me, I think even in Greece at one point, yeah. 
so the international experience is awesome. And as far as the location of the bases, um, I've been to all four and my personal preference is Wichita Falls is the is a great spot. So I would I would pick it just for the location again if I if I had to. Um, but yeah, I consider myself I guess lucky uh, to to get to go there. But it was a great experience overall. Um, you I'd I'd recommend talking to people who went to Laughlin Vance in Columbus as well just to get a balanced perspective. But people who went to Egypt did not have the mindset of we're better than other people just to clear that rumor if it's still floating right around. yeah yeah heard loud and clear sir uh, definitely a cool experience though i mean definitely an international part of it um sometimes are there different nato nations is it kind of like they kind of group different nato nations together like you said it was just dutch italian and german um but is there sometimes there's other countries in nato that go to end up just depending on the class i would assume Yep. Yeah. So it'll depend on the class and when, uh, you know, how many pilots each country needs to fill their cockpits. Right. So j just as with the U S structure, they, you know, they need X amount to fill this number of cockpits by whatever year. So they project back and then they will uh, pretty much pay into the program. Um, however many people they're going to put through. Um, the other aspect is that there are international instructors there as well, which follow a similar uh, requirement. In addition to, um, they, they will reserve even command billets um, and set number of instructor billets for different nations um, so that, uh, you know, so their careers have the opportunity to grow as well, which is uh, healthy as a big organization. Would you say you learned a little differently going to NGEP, just kind of like strategy and tactics a little bit, just learning from another country kind of instructor versus American, or do they all kind of teach in a similar fashion? Um, standardized training uh, is, is a thing and there, you know, the syllabus is created in order to do that. But, but, the, but. <laughs> the, the way, the technique that is used to uh, teach is, can be very different between the instructors, uh, not even just international, but even within the US instructors. With their background, uh, a, a different approach is almost expected um, for some. Uh, I, I had, a few international instructors. There's one Dutch instructor that uh, to this day, I think he gave me some of the, the best flying advice um, I've ever received. And I think back on it, you know, even when, when I was flying over the Gulf. Uh, and then there are some that like, I just felt a barrier to, and they just couldn't get through to me. And I, I wasn't receptive to their instruction. And the same thing for the, you know, U.S. instructors, but it usually was more of their personality that was the barrier than than like a language barrier or cultural barrier uh, from that point. So uh, they they stay within the appropriate syllabus that's agreed upon by all the nations, but at the same time they uh, they make their instruction their own, which is the best part about teaching aviation, in, in my opinion. Yeah, sure. So at NGEP, like once you get, uh, I guess, a plane or selected for type of airframe at NGEP, is it, it's not solely fighters, is it? Or what kind of, what's the percentage of fighters between kind of other aircraft that are selected for uh, trainees? So that's where I don't know the percent statistics on if NGEPT is balanced with the other three pilot training bases. There is an ongoing argument, um, and I understand both sides of you just make a percentage of a T-38 graduating class, you make a percentage get fighters, a percentage get, you know, first assignment instructor pilot FAPES, and then, you know, whatever else. There's also the thought that um, at Inject, you don't even have the option to go T-1s, so 
using a percentage uh, isn't necessarily fair when you have an entire class that's been training towards being a fighter, which is what the organization was built for originally. <clears throat> so you don't, if you go to NJET, that does not mean you're getting a fighter. It goes with the needs and demands of the Air Force. Um, when I was going through pilot training, we were in a, let's call it a significant lull. And there was like one fighter dropping per class and a class was 10, 10 to 12 people, uh, which people were not super excited about. In, in my class, because of how uh, heavy we were internationally, we had three assignables, which was kind of unheard of. And, and we, everything else was, you know, one fighter. So we were expecting like one fighter, one FAPE. Again, first time instructor pilot, finished pilot training, stay there if that's not a common concept. And then we were expecting something else. A bomber, uh, AFSOC, heavy, and anything really. And we got to drop night and there was a Strike Eagle and two A-10s. And everyone was like, everyone was floored because at the time it wasn't happening. And that was, you know, a year after I showed up. So whenever you guys, whoever's listening to this, whenever you get to pilot training, the needs of the Air Force may be in your favor and it may not be in your favor. Like that's the biggest downside is that that is pure timing. Um, but if there is only one spot, you at least have some control of your performance. Uh, but it is not, it is not completely fighters. Um, there have been a lot more recently with the <clears throat> fighter pilot exodus prior to COVID. I don't know uh, what that's doing to the uh, fighter pilot crisis, if you've heard of that. Um, but I would imagine with the rate, at least that they're pumping F-35s out of the factory that um, the numbers are not going to be super low for the next few years, but that's my pure speculation. Sure. So from NJEPT, you started flying F-15s, correct? F-15Es? Yep. Yep. The E model. Um, What's the difference yeah. between the E model real quick? Just so, yeah, the, I guess. Yeah, I which, which is something, that. yeah. I didn't even thoroughly understand it until halfway through T-38s when I finally started asking. Because they were like, hey, you need to start thinking about putting your dream sheet out. You know, uh, reference my procrastinating decision-making. Right. Um, so the F-15E Strike Eagle uh, was born from the F-15C eagle there is a d model which is think of it as the c model but with a back seat and that's usually used for training and incentive rides so if you ever hear f15d that is the f15c just with a back seat the f15e they beefed up the the body so that it could carry bombs so the f15c only shoots missiles and and a gun so it's only air to air the f15e is air to air and air to surface. And so they beefed up the, the structure of it and added on some uh, gas tanks. So if you ever look at pictures, you can see it's just a little bit, a little bit more uh, ready to hibernate than the F-15C. Um, but the big difference is shoots missiles and drops bombs um, at a detriment to its aerodynamic performance would be the easiest way to say it. Um, so with the Strike Eagle, you are a crewed aircraft, you're a pilot, and there's a weapon system officer in the back seat, which is a very different dynamic than flying, uh, than flying solo. So both the mission and the flying requirements are, are different. So when people just lump F-15s together, uh, you start hurting feelings. But <clears throat> either either jet is is righteous. Uh, I I really enjoyed the Strike Eagle, and I enjoyed the camaraderie with the Wizos and the Weapon System officers um, as well. Actually, going through RTC, uh, Colonel Ernie Hinchka was our detachment commander, and he was an F-111 Aardvark uh, Wizzo who went through so it was it was neat to <clears throat> be flying the newer version of what he flew you know in, in sort of the the crew concept there but yeah that's the biggest difference probably more words than needed um for the between the e model and the c model so what'd you like better 
F35s or F15Es? Or just different, um, you know? They definitely are different, but do you have a favorite possibly or something you want to share? It's really, and I, I don't, I don't say this, uh, I guess, politically or, you know, for fear of <clears throat> hurting anyone's feelings. It's a completely different experience other than it's flying a fighter. <clears throat> both because of the mission set and because it's i'm the only one in the jet again i really i really enjoyed flying with wizos there was a concept that i would teach in iff to strike eagle guys going through guys and girls that there's two brains in the cockpit and depending on how you worked with one another it was either two brains half a brain or four brains so you because there are two people working together, you, you could be much more successful than one person. Um, so there are the pros and cons that way. In the F-35, my performance is my performance. So there's there's no one in the cockpit with me to back me up safety-wise, mission-wise, to realize that I'm a little bit behind the jet and be like, hey, fish, you know, get, get back on it. Um, so it's a different, it's a different approach mentally and, and flying as far as the performance goes, they actually have similar, um, performance as far as like aerodynamics and thrust to weight. Um, however, the F-35 has, you know, different flying technology that enables it to perform differently in that regard. The Strike Eagle could carry tons more as far as munitions goes. Um, but the F-35 is stealth, so it can sort of weasel its way through the enemy air defenses and make each weapon count more, if, uh, if that makes sense. So there are so many different ways of, of thinking about it that I can't, I, I honestly can't say that I enjoyed one more than the other. There are some really cool things about the F-35 that the Strike Eagle doesn't have that I really do enjoy um, and being able to sort of turn in space and, and go like this is something the strike eagle can't do you know um, it's not stealth and there are pros and cons to the helmet as well um, but the, you know even the helmet structure is different where you can look through the jet if you will so it's it's got its cool tricks uh, right but newer newer technology yeah yeah right so you mentioned you were deployed were you deploying the f-15e or or you were yeah. in the f-15 were you in the f-35 yeah. as well or just f-15 no so i only deployed in the f-15e we deployed to the uae for uh, six months and then got an additional month and a half tagged on when sequestration hit if you've heard of that word um that that was a, so we didn't employ any ordinance in the seven and a half month deployment, which um, a lot of people saw as a demotivator, especially for the uh, munitions troops, uh, ammo and armament who build the bombs and Don't load and that. download the bombs respectively. Don't ever get the two confused. Um, but there was one armament troop one time I came back from mission and we still had all the bombs uh, on the jet and he plugs in and you know we can talk he's outside I'm inside and he plugs in he goes ah sir bummer you got brought them all back and I was like well yeah that may be a bummer and I'm sorry that you have to download these you know take them off the jet yet again tonight but just realize that because I'm not dropping anything there's no threat to the good guys so uh, at least everyone's safe tonight. And, you know, he, he walked away from that with a slightly different perspective uh, uh, from just approaching, you know, what war is, if you will. So sorry to go a little, little big picture there, but um, that was like probably the most memorable event um, for me of, of the deployment. Uh, we did a lot of training because there wasn't um, the, there wasn't a lot of action by the bad guys uh, so a unique deployment especially because the people who came right after us just started 
leaning off the rails and and then ISIL, ISIS, Daesh uh, started doing their thing uh, shortly thereafter. So that was that was my deployment in the Strike Eagle. And then, yeah, didn't deploy an IFF because uh, it's a training aircraft. And then the F-35s at Eglin, the, their sole job is to teach the basic course and to teach the transition course. So they're not an operational unit, but hopefully after I'm done learning and I do a little bit of staff time, I can get back to an operational assignment. And yeah, and F-35. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so is not really dropping anything during deployment, is that a rarity or is that just sometimes it's active, sometimes it isn't? Um, for my, for my career, that, that is rare. There were, there were a few, uh, we were sort of at the tail end of a, of a lull since we have been in the Middle East for so long now uh yeah for my entire career right um so yeah it, it was it was a bit rare um and to sort of end it on getting extended another month and a half it was you know it was a morale had an effect on morale to to say the least and i was going through a flight lead upgrade at the time that wasn't going too well so it was like adding insult to injury but i got through it it's fine Sure. So I guess more broader question about kind of just your career in general. Have you had like through your multiple different assignments and stuff like that? Have you had a favorite boss or kind of a leader that stuck out to you uh, or someone that you kind of saw as a mentor? And if so, why and how they you know kind of showed that? Um, I have had I've I've been very fortunate with with my leaders primarily is my like my direct like my squadron commanders and my direct supervisors which after lake and heath has primarily been one in the same because of my position and the positions i've had there um so i've gotten to see let me see if i can just close this are you hearing that notification yeah yeah i am i'm just gonna there we go all right Let's do that. Um, <clears throat> I have had four exceptional squadron commanders, um, and one of them stands out uh, significantly. And all of them, I don't know if you guys have talked about, you know, the concept of do you prioritize mission uh, over people or people over mission? Um, but every good leader that I've had interactions with and it is my belief as well that if you just take care of people the mission will follow 100% of the time so um, almost to the extent that you don't care about the mission but not quite like you have to care about it or at least you have to delegate to other people who it's their job to care about it it's so like a commander and a do the commander goes do make the mission happen i'll care about the people and that's been the best uh the the best approach to leadership that i've seen and i think one of the most intangible aspects of leadership that i've seen be effective is transparency um so you'll see between a squadron group and a wing the wing commander says you know let's do this people of the squadron don't hear those words they get whatever is filtered down to them. And uh, a lot of times leaders will say, well, you know, these, I, I don't need to tell them this. I just need to, you know, give them the directive or the direction and they need to do what I tell them to. Um, the good leaders I've seen have been transparent with, with the people in their unit. Uh, the not so good leaders, I've had a, a couple the not so good leaders would not be transparent. So you'd be left guessing as to the motivations behind their decisions, reasonings, intents, which you start talking to other people and then it, it just creates an environment that's not uh, conducive to camaraderie, uh, if you will. And then they also, if they took care of their people 
if their intent was to take care of their people, they did so poorly, um, which may just be a competence thing on their part. Uh, I don't know. Um, but it, I did not perceive that they cared about their, their people as much. Um, so those have been the, the two biggest differences um, in, in the effective and not so effective leaders that, that I've uh, had. But again, I've been super fortunate. Uh, my most recent uh, leader, squadron commander, was uh, a pretty good friend as well. Um, and he was real. He was transparent. He was super tactical and brilliant. Um, and he motivated everyone in the squadron. Like it was a even going through COVID and reduced flying and all, all of this, um, he was able to keep the morale up and everyone like still liked coming, like wanted to come to work. Um, so I think, I think that he's probably, probably my best squad commander, but it's pretty tough with the uh, leaders I've been fortunate to work with. Right. You see yourself kind of a certain community, I guess, with fighters. So, uh, what's your perspective, I guess, on that finer community, if they're all kind of similar in their leadership or not, not necessarily, but, um, I, um, so there, there are stereotypes, um, people frown about stereotypes, um, and I don't want to get into how it goes beyond the fighter pilot community, but, um, I think stereotypes exist for a reason. Uh, they're not always applicable in every situation. The stereotypes of the different communities are, in my opinion, C-model uh, pilots are usually super type A, hard charging and right there letting you know about it. F-22 pilots are, uh, and again, I don't know who's gonna see this, but if they, <laughs> I risk generalizing these stereotypes. <laughs> F-22 pilots uh, are similar. This is going to come back to bite me later on in my career. I know it. Uh, or, or take a similar sort of, you know, I don't want to call it machismo, but that's the best word that I can think of right now. Uh, mentality, primarily because they are air superiority and they have ensured and enjoyed air superiority for decades, right? So they've, they've kind of built and to an extent earned that mentality. Um, in the Strike Eagle community, you can't necessarily have that mentality because you're a crew concept. So the, the mentality doesn't apply as much to, to the, the platform. So you get a little more of a, uh, I don't wanna say well-rounded, well but you know, dubbed down version uh, in, in most Strike Eagle pilots. Uh, and then the F-16 is, is like, because it's a single seat concept, it's like F-15C and F-22 pilots, but I don't know if it's more tamed or just a different venue of, of pride and ability, um, but there, there is a delineation there. Um, and then I don't think the F-35 community has sort of formed into a stereotype because we've taken people from C model, E model, A-10s and F-16s and there are different variants in the F-16. Um, so we're still sort of figuring out where we fit into, you know, right. the breakdown of the fighter pilot community. And then the, the A-10 is like, that's where the chill, uh, the chill pilots go. Like solid pilots, usually pretty chill. Um, those are just the you know general stereotypes that uh, yeah that I would assign arbitrarily to to the fighter pilot communities uh, writ large. But again, personal opinion that'll come back to bite me. It's <laughs> funny to hear. I never even thought of that, but yeah, I guess that makes sense. You're you're giving reasoning behind it too, so I totally totally believe you. <laughs> um, you know, it, I mean, it's just a thing. Like if 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 any. If any cadets decide to go to pilot training, um, I don't think there's a lot of talk leading up to assignment night or when you fill in your dream sheets of, you know, what the intangibles are outside of you can look and see what an A-10 does and what weapons it can carry, even though you don't know anything about weapons at the time. But to at least have a, 
rough idea of the community that you're going into. That way you're not, you know, you don't do really well at pilot training and you are like, oh, that 15C sounds cool, but you're more of an introvert and you're timid and you, you don't, you don't dance on that stage. Um, you may not want to put it as number one. So that's, that's the main reason I tried to highlight it. Sure. So all these assignments, F-15s, F-35s, um, teaching, have you had a favorite assignment oh. so far? And if so, why? Um, <clears throat> so your first assignment, I, I would assume uh, across the board, regardless of AFSC, holds a special place in your heart. And my assignment at Lake Heath did. Um, you know, I got married, I had my first deployment, I flew my first jet in combat. I mean, firsts always stand out to you. Um, so it stood out to me in that way. The impact that I f at least feel I was able to have in my time teaching at IFF is probably the most rewarding to me. Um, and the full circle opportunities it, cre it created for me. So there have been, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 pilots or so that I put through the F-35 transition course who I had taught in IFF. So it created really cool full circles there um, that I was able to, you know, uh, there's a pilot, she came through the F-35 and when she promoted to captain, you know, I put my name on the schedule because I had taught her in IFF and, you know, we went airborne and she did the oath of office inverted kind of thing. Like, so it created these full circle opportunities um, that I was able to do in IFF. Um, so that was the most rewarding as far as, in, as far as impact goes that I was able to feel personally. And then my F-35 assignment was the most challenging tactically um, and balance wise, because I then had two kids. My daughter was born right before, my daughter who's my second child was born right before I started the instructor upgrade. Um, so I had to balance a lot more and I had to learn uh, a whole new jet. And I had to then instruct in that new jet uh, quickly thereafter. So my learning curve had to be faster and it created a much more challenging assignment than my previous two in that regard. Um, favorite overall, probably my assignment at Eglin because I was able to learn a new cool jet while still teaching people and, and applying my own teaching style in, in a forming cadre of instructors as well as i was able to enjoy you know the, the family that i've built along the way so there you go you got a straight answer out of me there, there we are <laughs> yeah so you've been assigned to england twice um is there a reason why england is just keeps popping up is that common for your career path or is that just something you kind of desire to be placed or something that just kind of happens or a mix of all so in the strike eagle um there are three bases that you can be assigned to uh there's mountain home seymour johnson and lake and heath so of those three when i was going through the basic course i was like i'm a single guy let's go live overseas that sounds cool uh they also have at the time they had the the more powerful motors so more powerful engine so it was a you know a little more fun to seems fly. implied yeah you know so these these variables go into it <clears throat> so i was like yeah let's do it um so part of it is where you can potentially even be assigned uh and then as far as where i am now uh, being at school at a certain point you can apply for school uh, we'll call it and there are a bunch of options that you have um, there. So there are the military schools, which this is the advanced command and staff college and the Air Force traditional one is at Maxwell uh, Air Force Base in Montgomery. And that is the Air Command and Staff College, if I'm getting 
that acronym correct. But then the different branches all have their own um, schools, as well as you can apply to fellowships, um, like strategic policy fellowships, White House fellowships, um, stuff that gets you uh, directly involved in government considerations. Um, and then there are some international options as well as <clears throat> potentially going back to the uh, US Air Force Academy to teach. So I looked at all these and I said, honey, if we even think we want to go to England, we're going to have to put it as number one because it's, um, I'm the only US Air Force student in the school. So it's, it's kind of rare. And I'm like, we have to put it as number one. And she goes, oh, yeah. Our, could we even get that? And I was like, no, like 0.02% chance. But, but, but. So she goes, yeah, sure, let's do it. Uh, so that that was the you know we we really enjoyed our time here and we were like you know let's let's take the kids back. Um, Lake and Heath is going to be getting F-35s in November of next year, so that sort of played into the calculus as far as you know where could we go after this school assignment. And we were like, well, that'd be pretty neat to have my first assignment at Lake and Heath, you know, get my nerd on uh, <clears throat> in England and then move over yeah, back to Lake. And be one of the first uh, first F-35 people in the first F-35 units there. So uh, those were sort of the motivating factors. But we just we love being overseas. You know, we speak the same language, but with very significant differences and nuances, right? Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, their luck, timing, and preference, I guess, all all this motivated us to at least shoot for it coming back here. So Lake and Heath is looking like a good possibility for F-35s after this curtain, current student stint. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I'll do one year here and then we'll actually move a little bit closer to London and do a staff assignment, um, which will be on the British staff and I'll just be planning strategy and operations and stuff from mm -hmm. an Air Force perspective and giving them a US Air Force perspective. Um, and then, and then the intent is to go to an operational location for the F-35, which would either be, uh, Hill, Eilson or Lake and Heath, um, at the time. So being over here would already make sense and having history here and having good contacts here, it would make sense for me to go there, but I'm not in charge of my destiny and just request it. Sure. Sure. So where are you based out of right now? being at the U or where's the UK Defense Academy are you close to that I would assume yeah so the UK Defense Academy is out that window and yeah. that is in, um that is in Swindon um which is I think the population is like 200,000 it's not uh, a very common uh or very well-known city um at least that I'm aware of but it's about 45 minutes to an hour northwestish of London, uh, about an hour west of Oxford um, as well. So it's near the Cotswolds, which is an area that is um, just about as like quintessential English and just yeah. beautiful old houses and rolling green hills, as you can imagine. Um, so it's a beautiful area with, you know, during these COVID times, it's a great opportunity to go out and like see the countryside um, since we can't go to mainland. But uh, yeah, no, yeah. good place, good place to be. Um, I actually lived in England, so that's why I kind of ask a little bit. Um, I lived yeah, in Portsmouth. Yeah, where did you live again? Portsmouth. Oh, Portsmouth. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I lived nice. there for three years when I was like just four to seven, you know, because my dad's work. But uh, yeah, definitely cool experience. Have y'all traveled travel a lot kind of within England, of course, and probably European countries before pre-COVID? We, so we, I mean, we moved yeah. here. Uh, in the middle of COVID and we're even surprised that this happened. Yeah, um, wow. So we've just sort of been hub and spoking it from our house doing day trips. Um, we're, we're actually gonna this weekend go back to Lake and Heath and uh, show the kids our old stomping grounds. Um, but we, yeah, it's pretty much been day trips around which we still have filled pretty much every weekend with, um, you know, we're planning on uh, doing a Scotland trip and going to see if uh, we can eventually catch Nessie and see the Harry Potter bridge for the kids, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. 
maybe stop by a distillery or two just for some sure. keepsakes have you been to ireland yet at all not not this time we we definitely we went uh we didn't make it up to the giants causeway but we went to dublin a few times the guinness uh brewery is yeah, been there. uh yeah have you have you been there yeah been there yeah yeah I have Irish it's, heritage, so it definitely oh, been a couple times. So. Oh, yeah, okay. Cool, cool spot. Yeah. It's like four stories. Yeah, four stories no, it's beautiful. Yeah, so it's been haven't been able to branch out too much, but you know, uh, being forced to uh, see the local area has been a blessing in disguise, actually, because we've had some really good outings, and and we end most days back home, so the kids are comfortable, not in a not in a hotel, but. When hopefully, hopefully this all clears up in the next few years that we're here and we're able to show the kids, you know, a bit more, if able. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't have too much more. Um, one thing I'm, I'm kind of curious about, I just want to ask and throw out there, if you don't have anything that pops to your mind, that's fine. Um, but do you have any funny or memorable stories from your time so far in the Air Force? Anything that you look back on is like, wow, that happened. <laughs> Funny or memorable, or just a story. I think um, so. I've talked about like the personal full circles that that I've created through teaching, and you know, you'll you'll see people, you'll meet people, and you'll see them at different points in your career, and you know, those are full circles. I think one of the most memorable events is right after I graduated and commissioned, um, commissioned May 23rd, uh, commissioned May 25th, didn't go active until the end of October. So I had this chunk of time where I went, you know, went home, lived with my parents, uh, worked in a restaurant and made a bunch of money and went to, I did a tour of Europe, which is probably another answer to why I came over here. But I was doing a day trip and driving down this road uh, on uh, Loch Ness and looking for Nessie, naturally. And I just remember driving, I, for whatever reason, it was a very vivid memory for me, just driving along that road, uh, you know, and then the rest of the day kept going. Well, then <clears throat> fast forward a few years and I'm at 500 feet doing 400 knots flying directly down Loch Ness and I look over and see the road and I almost had a you know surreal moment where I like transported myself to that and that was like that was probably the most memorable and like unique full circle moment that I've had uh, because it was the same place in a completely different perspective and a completely different time in my life um, so yeah. I think I think that's been w one of the one of the most memorable. Um, I think also my first unrestricted climb in the F thirty uh, five was was very memorable because um, I never did one in the Strike Eagle for I think I did one in the B course maybe, uh, but anyways, it was a very memorable moment to get going rip roaring fast at the end of the runway and just. You know, pull and go uh, nearly, nearly straight up, and just run away from the earth. Uh, How does that feel? Um, the first time you do it, you're usually too distracted with processing airspeed, altitude, and and uh, radio calls they have to make. But after you get comfortable with stuff like that, the ability to just sort of look down and I try to take at least one moment um, each flight just to realize how fortunate uh, fortunate I am. And usually that's the time I'll like look down and, you know, look over the Emerald Coast of the, you know, the Gulf of Florida. And it's like, this is almost unfair that, you know, I get paid to do this. That's what, that's sort of the thought, but, you know, there's, there's the child in me that says, well, this is super cool right at the same time yeah. uh, and then i have to get back on airspeed altitude you know, right right don't crash the plane <laughs> keep it yeah. in the air 
So yeah, those are those are two that that jump to mind. Uh, in addition to the one I talked about, deployed as far as uh, bringing weapons back. Yeah, funny. You know, it's probably probably just my you know the times I've made like horrible pilot horrible pilot errors. Um, <clears throat> I don't have anyone that jumps to mind other than you know yeah maybe roll calls but thank you <laughs> yeah that's fine <laughs> yeah and uh i've i've had yeah a lot of a lot of good memories there's usually the funny memories were uh making jokes with my international buddies and in pilot training uh after a really stressful week right i can only yeah. imagine sir <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I have. Um, do you have anything else you want to add to the podcast? Any cadets listening or anyone? Um, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at death 330 and I'm, you know, obviously I volunteered to do this because, um, I think having a well-rounded, uh, understanding or at least exposure to, um different career fields while you guys are trying to make your decision on what you want to do with your career be it four years or 20 years um that's why i volunteered for this and also because i loved my time in death 330 and it um it did a lot for me as a person and it set set me up for what i've enjoyed as uh what i think is a good career thus far I'm still going i signed the pilot bonus and they've got me until 20 so um it's been enough uh, I've enjoyed it enough that, you know, I just wanted to send some words back to you guys and let you know that if you ever want to chat at all, uh, feel free to reach out and email me uh, directly. It'd be great. Yes, sir. Well, I'll definitely share your information with all cadets in our detachment. If you're ever in the area in Maryland at all, sometime in the near future or far future, whenever it is, uh, feel free to reach out through any means necessary, social media, phone number, and you're absolutely welcome to attachment anytime. So uh, really want to thank you for hopping on. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation for sure. And I know a lot of other cadets will uh, once they listen to it. So uh, just Great. again, thank, thank you. Thank you for setting it up. I appreciate yeah. it. Of course, of course. All, All right. right. Have a good evening. Until next time, man. Have a good one. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget to check out our social media. We are both on Instagram at AFROTC at underscore debt 330 and on Facebook at Air Force ROTC Detachment 330 uh, hyphen University of Maryland. Also, shout out to Cadet Bobby Robinson for the intro music. You got some sweet bars.